Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Yes Sir HR. As usual, my name is Mark, and I am with. Yes, you're still with me in Jersey. I'm Dennis. Dennis, <laughs> today is a special day, a special podcast. Do uh, you know why? Yeah, well, we have our good friend, Ochun, with us, and um, she's the real expert in this field. So, and great to catch up with her again. And Hopefully, both of you um, back in Asia in the not too distant future. Right. I'm actually looking very much to forward to today's uh, podcast. I know we tried to do once, and then unfortunately there was some found some kind of hiccup, but we eventually got here. So I'm going to get uh, Ocean to introduce herself, uh, a very good friend, I must say, uh, and I, I'm a very respected person because every time I have a conversation with her, I seem to learn. I seem to learn a lot from the way she shares her experience and expertise. So all of you listeners are in for a treat. So Ochen, over to you. Well, thanks very much, Mark and Dennis, for having me on this evening. It's really exciting to be with you and to share a passion that I've held for many, many years. I've been working on the whole concept and the practice of inclusion for most of my professional life. And so differentiation or personalized learning or universal design, these are all related concepts to how do we serve children in school. So it's really exciting for me to be here. Thank you. Uh, and I'll set the context for everyone. Uh, today, we want to talk a little bit about what is differentiated instruction. Uh, and more importantly, with the rising importance of using data to identify uh, student learning needs, uh, the question now, that, and maybe we'll start off with this question, does, with the, with the uh, I suppose, availability of such learning data help teachers to introduce the concept of differentiated instruction a little more easily in the classroom? So I'll get Dennis to kick us off. Maybe Dennis, you can you can uh, tell everyone what you think differentiated instruction is, and then we'll bring Ocean in uh, get, getting uh, her point of view. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's I can go back many many decades, in fact, and there was always a challenge in teaching. Is well, yep. you've got different personalities in the classroom. You've got um, children with. Uh, different levels of competence and somehow you have to um, design a lesson that it's as many people as possible and I can even remember the days when teachers went in the classroom and read out notes and things like that and all that basically meant was that they could do a one-way transmission of information in in one modality uh, at a given pace and time and you either caught it some of it or you didn't and then we, we try to um, have lessons where a teacher would prepare a mainstream lesson that would kind of hopefully cover some key concepts and then have to design some other activities that would be a little bit more challenging and some that were less challenging. And this was, to be frank, um, well intended, but an absolute nightmare for some teachers given the kind of workloads that we um you know, that we were experiencing. So this issue of how do we try to make instruction inclusive to all kids, wherever they're coming from, in ways that's meaningful to them. And um, the, the discussion today is, well, 
yeah, um, we want that level of inclusion. How can we use um, our knowledge of pedagogy, one, and also technology to bring this together in some way to make this a, a viable reality? So that, that's my kind of opening frame on the uh, discussion. Okay. So can I bring Ocean in? Uh, I noticed that you use the word inclusive. Dennis also used the word inclusive. Uh, and for the benefit of people who maybe are listening f uh, to this for the first time, uh, is are they mutually dependent on one another when we talk about differentiated instruction and inclusivity, or are they two sides of the same coin? I, I think they're very much allied. And when we have an inclusive mindset, we would naturally yeah. differentiate instruction for young people. So as an example, um, yeah. you know, the city-state of Reggio Emilia, when I went there to see how do they serve children with special educational needs, the first thing they said to me is, please don't talk about children with special needs. We talk about children with special rights right. at Reggio Emilia. And they said, we start from the position of difference. We expect that every child who walks into our classroom will be different one from another. And to that end, we need to serve them in the ways that meet their individual needs. And so when Dennis was talking about, uh, talking earlier about a teacher, perhaps even reading to a class for 45 minutes or making one standard lesson, and um, that was just for everyone, I remember that the practice used to be that if the student didn't get it, it was usually their fault you know teachers right. said it was their fault and when we start with the idea of inclusion how do we make this accessible to everyone i think then we would naturally because it's part of who we are you know how do we make sure that the students in our classes learn not that we're just standing up there teaching them yeah okay i i, I like that idea we start off from a position of difference uh, but for I, I mean i'm trying to to do that in my classroom uh, and I want to bring back to what an earlier point that I said. I think one of the difficulties that most teachers face is uh, what exactly counts as differentiation? And I'm not even sure that is a fair question, but I'm going to turn it over to both of you. Can you make it simple enough for someone to understand what actually counts as differentiation in the classroom? And then I'll bring back my earlier point about learning data. So maybe we'll start off with Dennis. Dennis, what actually counts as differentiation and how is it and how then does it link to inclusivity well um going back to the you know the example that i used um all i can remember in in my education was trying to capture the words that were said by teachers uh going home trying to write them in in, in a form of language that made sense to me and then kind of memorizing that now uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience, and if I look back on it now, um, you know, in the present context, it's educational Jurassic Park. But you can't blame the teachers of the time because that was like, if you like, the conventional wisdom. It's like blaming doctors who were walking around with sores and bottles of whiskey and leeches and saying, "Well, you know, that that that, that wasn't exactly evidence-based medicine." Um, so there's two aspects, but the differentiation, if if um, uh, if I can go back to what Ocean said about rights, um, if we are having a um, an educational aim of 
meeting all students' learning needs based on their differences. And the differences are multifaceted, personality yep. type, et cetera, et cetera, particular special educational needs. And even within, when we talk about special educational needs, there's a lot of differences within that, right? Um, can we design a learning environment teachers are able individually, collectively, whichever way we structure these kind of um, learning um, arrangements and practices and personnel to uh, ensure, and it's never going to meet every single child's needs in every every single situation. That, that, I don't think that's a uh, an absolute possibility. It's a regulatory ideal. But the idea is that students can learn given where they are to move forward in some uh, meaningful areas of understanding and competence. Um, so that's um, a frame on that from me. Right. Ocean, uh, similar thoughts to Dennis or do you have something uh, totally different? Well, I would say that one would make learning so compelling right. that even if a student doesn't feel like coming to school that day, even if they feel like, you know, the world is about to crash around them, that right. because the learning is so exciting, they are, they are eager to be in the class. And, right. you know, what works for Mark or what works for Dennis might not work for Alton. So it would be the teacher who is skilled who can say, oh, well, this type of lesson will appeal to so-and-so. And you don't have to do it every single day for every single student, but you can say something that I used to promise my students is that once in every four-day cycle, because we had a four-day schedule, yep. at least once in every four-day cycle, we will craft, we will create, develop a lesson that is just for you. Now, th that meant that, you know, for those students who liked certain kinds of, of activities, we would make sure that we threw something in there like that. Or if they like to show their learning in certain ways, we would make sure that we would plan a lesson just for those students so that they knew that they would have their turn, you know, at least once in every four-day cycle. Perfect. So that sounds good. But uh, I'm going to bring in the literature here because this will tell you how maybe naive or, or, for want of a better word, uneducated I am with regards to differentiated instruction. Uh, I think, Ocha, when you say, you know, you, you promise them we will do at least one day in a four-day cycle that is just for you, sounds very doable. But I think there's some misunderstanding of what differentiated instruction is uh, because the four principles apply in terms of differentiated instruction. Uh, by Carol Tomlinson. I think that's uh, anybody who wants to know about differentiated instruction has to read her. Uh, but uh, they advocate differentiation in four ways. Number one, differentiate the learning outcomes. Number two, differentiate the teaching methods. Number three, differentiate the final product. Or number four, differentiate the learning environment. Now, with teachers already struggling with doing what I would call excellent instruction in a generic classroom, when hearing of these four principles, the first instinct is it's more work. Is that mm -hmm. necessarily true? You know, I think initially it is true. I think okay. that there are two ways for teachers to be 
completely turned off by differentiation. The first is if they are overwhelmed. Yep. And the other is when they are underwhelmed and they say something like, oh, I do that already. Right. Uh, and then they're, then it's not very thoughtful. But I, you know, earlier on, you asked about data. Right. Where does data fit? And yep. I would say, please don't do anything without data. Okay. Uh, you absolutely need it. You need to be able to observe students and how they learn so that you can actually craft something that would be appealing to them. And, you know, you can cluster kids. It doesn't have to be one student out of the whole class likes this way of learning. But you can say, ah, there are connections here. There's a group of students who would really like to, you know, show us what they've learned through an act, through a, a play. They can do a skit. There are certain other students who feel like, oh, they would prefer to write. So, you know, that some something about choice. I think that Tomlinson would say, well, mm. yeah, that goes along with, um, you know, offering different products for students to use. Right. And I think that it also speaks to what she said about using different strategies or instructional uh, pedagogy to meet the needs of different students within the classes. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Dennis, chime in here. Yeah, I mean, uh, this notion of making student um, learning interesting is is fundamental to instruction. The the idea is why do we want to have good um, applications of cognitive science to the way we design learning environments, teaching methods, uh, and the way we conduct ourselves as people is to try to make that experience in the classroom um, more meaningful more interesting so that more students can connect um so um i've no problem with um carol tomlinson's four pillars it's just yes. the operationality of it what i certainly see um um uh, in the uk environment where um when we look at reports that are coming out that um 75 teachers this is in the uk are intending to leave the profession over the next two years. And I think it's in the UK got the highest teaching as the highest attrition rate. Um, it says something about the way teachers themselves are experiencing the job. And um, certainly one of the big issues is the amount of workload and also the, the challenges of meeting all the kind of requirements laid down by uh, places, um, institutions and like Ofsted where schools are constantly being evaluated and having to show results uh, in so many different areas that for a lot of teachers it, it almost falls back to what um, Argreaves said many years ago, if teachers um, can't do it, I won't do it, it doesn't get done and I think for a lot of teachers to try to meet all the demands of um, different student needs and the administrative requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the job is, is, is so challenging. And that's my, that's my worry. Can we have a, a learning environment where teachers have less to do that's not teaching related and more to do that can actually um, enable them to understand their students better and to make instruction more interesting and more personalised not necessarily for every individual, but as, as Osha was saying, to kind of clusters. Because certainly what I noticed something is that 
if I look at the, the curriculum in England for reading and writing, a lot of it seems to me to be very abstract. Um, I, would, I would like students to be able to read things that they're interested in, interested in at their level and build their vocabulary up around areas that they're interested in, rather than maybe have to do look at similes and metaphors in the... Um, in some Macbeth play. Um, obviously, if you're doing advanced literature or GCSE or something, then that makes sense. So maybe there's a need to have a massive reframe of curriculum, a bit like you had in Singapore, Mark, when um, I think a third of content was cut. So these are some of the issues that come up, the context of education at the moment and the, the demands on teachers. Mm. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I also add to that? Yeah, please. First of all, I think that in an inclusive environment, you know, we think about tiers of service and inclusive in an inclusive environment. Differentiation is the first tier. That okay. means that every teacher needs to be doing it. And actually, um, when when I was writing about differentiated instruction, I have a slightly different take than Tomlinson does. Very, very similar. But. Um, she doesn't actually mention some of these, so I'm going to add these over here. I think the first principle that Powell and, and Kusuma Powell would advocate for is know your students. You've okay. got to know your students in order to differentiate any sort of instruction for them. Okay. The second is to know your curriculum. And by knowing your curriculum, De Dennis is absolutely right. You know, there's no point in providing students with meaningless tasks. They need to know what are the big ideas that you're trying to bring across? What are the concepts? And please don't teach kids at a topical level. It needs to be conceptual. The third um, principle is know your assessments. You know, what kinds of assessments are you giving? Because if you can't uh, provide different ways for students to show their learning, then you're really only catering to one type of student. The fourth principle is to develop a repertoire of strategies. And I think that this is why earlier I mentioned that initially, yes, it does take more time. And then what's really important is that you develop a mindset for differentiation. So then it's just a part of who you are as an educator when you plan. And finally, and you've mentioned the time that it takes, Mark. Yep. Initially, it does take time. So our fifth principle is know your collegial relationships because this is not something that is necessarily it's not going to go away and when you can work with someone who can you know none of us are strong in every aspect of teaching and i think that when we can learn together with our colleagues they can help us to become stronger in those areas that we might feel a little bit insecure in right okay i want to uh, just uh, expound a little bit on your five principles. I think it's very interesting. And I'm going to get all of us to share from our own experience uh, a little bit about that, how we could bring these principles to life. So I'm going to take the first one, which is uh, it is important to know your students. So I'm going to put both of you in a spot. What would you do to get to know your students? What could be some mm. ways in which we could get to know our students? And I'll ask Dennis to uh, uh, answer first. Dennis, what are some ways that you use to get to know your students a little bit better? Well, the, the most important way is to actually speak to them. That it's, I think that the danger sometimes as teachers, we some teachers will go in and they try to get to know their students by giving them some assignments and tests. But it's those interpersonal communications 
Um, I, I'm kind of fairly lucky at the moment. I'm working in the school that's really trying to do the right things, um, both from an evidence-based point of view and I think from a, an inclusion point of view. Um, and I have the time to actually speak to students and find out what they're struggling with, what they like to do and what their concerns are, etc. And that very process of connecting with students, they feel more motivated to actually want to participate. And if then you can make the curriculum something that they can connect to, in other words, like reading. Um, I don't like reading stuff um, that I'm not interested, interested in. Um, I don't like doing things that I'm not interested in. And I think for a lot of um, kids in certain educational systems at the moment, and this can vary uh, from country to country, institution to institution, etc. Um, for the students, they're not seeing meaning in what they're learning. And now, if that's a generic problem, it's going to be an especial problem for those students who don't connect with the mainstream sort of teaching approaches anyway. So getting to know your students informally. And so much of this is, is non-verbal. It's subliminal. The way you speak, the tone of your voice, the eye contact, the smile. It's, it's an interpersonal skill. And I think it's, it's so important for those students to feel that um, you are their ally and that you understand that they find some things that they just can't connect with. And We've got to look at the relationship and we've got to look at the curriculum as two big areas, I think. Okay. Uchin, what about yourself? What do you share with teachers who are interested to get to know students a bit better? What are some strategies that they can do? You know, I think that Dennis is absolutely right, that this is, that relationships are foundational. Yeah. Um, I'm writing right now with a colleague in uh, California, Kendall Zoller, and we define inclusion as having four dimensions. The first is to be known, to be loved, to be safe, and mm -hmm. to be successful. Okay. Four dimensions. And foundational to all of that is relationships. And absolutely, you know, what Dennis said is there, I think there's a Chinese a word for very deep listening that actually explains that listening is a full body experience. Not only do you use your ears, you use your mind, you use your eyes, your heart, all of the parts of your body in order to listen. And we know that listening is foundational to the development of trust and trust is foundational to the development of relationships. So everything that Dennis said, when you listen, you listen not only with your ears, you listen with your eyes and with your heart. Right. Okay. Uh, I think that's uh, one. I think the whole point about building strong relationships as the foundation makes absolute sense to me. I'm a huge advocate of that. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. We'll move on to principle number two, which is I thought what you said in terms of teachers also need to know the curriculum. Yes. But what is especially interesting for me is don't teach topically, teach conceptually. Now, yes. for most of us who are listening to this, I think we more or less understand what that means. But could you just elaborate a little bit more? What do you mean by teaching conceptually uh, versus teaching topically? Well, many years ago, I met a teacher, a second grade teacher. And when I asked the question, what are you going to be teaching next week? She said, butterflies. I'm going to be teaching butterflies. Right. I said, so what's important about butterflies that you would teach butterflies 
And she said, well, because we always teach butterflies in second grade. Now, that's teaching at the level of, of topics. Right. You know, another topic that's very popular in grade eight would be, well, at least in, in many schools that I've been around, they would say, oh, we teach the industrial revolution in grade eight. And I have to ask the question, what's important? Why is that? You know, when you think about what Wiggins and McTighe wrote about test your concepts, make sure they are worthy. And when we say, are they worthy? Are they worthy of student time? And so you can put them through tests. So what is it about the Industrial Revolution that's really important? Maybe we want to think about human progress and say, who are the winners and losers of industrialization? You know, what were we able to do or not do? How did we think differently as a species? So that would be a difference. Okay, thanks for that. That's a good example. Uh, Dennis, bringing you in here, because remember in one of the core principles of learning that you wrote, uh, I think it's core principle number five about the structure of learning should be based around key concepts and ideas. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The history, I did A-level history and I remember memorising all the laws relating <laughs> to the corn laws, the trade union movement, and I did the Industrial Revolution, and there was the water frame, there was the mule and the spinning jenny, and all I did is memorise these words. I still managed to pass history, but I had no, no concept that history uh, was... was something about understanding the past what are kind of key things that affect the human condition in terms of people's livelihoods the movement from uh, uh, an agricultural to an industrial society and how that would change relationships and social structure and people's lives and how they felt it was just a collection of facts that spoke for themselves that's what i thought history was and it's nothing like that um it's about collection of stories often written by people who are quite privileged in many respects because one is that they can write and how it affects the way society develops and how people live their lives um so to me that there are key concepts aren't there involved in history mm. well, the industrial revolution was there were inventions yes we need to know about those but what did these inventions mean to people's lives and how does that connect to what we're doing today? We're now going through a massive industrial revolution with artificial intelligence at the yes. moment. And a lot of teachers don't know what artificial intelligence probably is in its real sense. They know, oh, it's to do with robots and mechanisation, but I don't think they fully understand the notion of neural networks, deep learning, machine learning, and how it's going to affect their jobs because... Um, we, Mark and myself and other people, and Ochin, you'll be aware of this, the, the big art um, piece of technology uh, at the moment is um, chat GPT, particularly yes. chat GPT-4, which mm -hmm. basically means now that students can just use this and say, well, can you summarise the Industrial Revolution? What yep. was the key impacts of the revo Industrial Revolution? Who were the main people? Do we need teachers to be showing dozens of PowerPoint slides that taken from a textbook uh, about the Industrial Revolution? We're no. now in a position where we can spend time on um, the more human aspects of learning, uh, more personalised learning, and hopefully more meaningful learning. So this is where the data is coming in now and the technology is coming in. 
Yeah, absolutely. And once you teach the key concepts and they fit together in your mind, uh, certain neurotransmitters um, fire around and it makes it much easier to learn in the topic. If you don't have a conceptual structure, uh, learning is so difficult. Understanding the key concepts, it goes right back to Jerome Bruner. Anything can be taught to anybody by way of courteous translation. build them refine them and that provides the neural networks both at the level of mind and certainly the brain to make learning meaningful so much of what um, is being taught and not learned is just educational jurassic park you know i think that uh, mark i think that what you're hearing from both dennis as well as me is that when we when we have teachers teaching at the level of topics the yep. cognitive load for students is so great because they are learning everything as a standalone. And when they're able to make the connections or when we help them to make those connections, then it's an easier lift. You know, you know how are these things connected? And then they can build abstract concepts, which is very difficult if we're just teaching about the inventions or about butterflies, you know, that that are just standalone topics. Right. Okay. I think that's important because to be very honest, uh, and here's a confession for me, uh, it took me many years in my teaching career before I finally realized what exactly that meant uh, when you look at teaching concepts as opposed to teaching in a topical uh, level. Uh, And it was an epiphany for me uh, simply because now I realize, and I do the same thing with new teachers that I mentor, is really asking them the question of, are you able to boil down your subject area or expertise into just five concepts? Mm. What are the absolute five key things that somebody needs to know about your subject area? And many of them look at me like, I can't do it in five. Then I would challenge them and say, then you don't really know your topic area. (laughs) So that's something that they they get quite mind-boggled about. Uh, and then they go back and they say, let me think about it. And then they come back and then they, and, and they always like to share with me. And I think this is quite good. Uh, is, oh, I didn't see it that way. It's given me a whole new perspective of how I should be teaching my students. Which to me, I consider that as a win. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. a win. Okay. So let's move on to the, to the third uh, principle, which is you talked about assessment, knowing the assessment. Hmm. Uh, so again, can I get you to elaborate a little bit on that? What do you mean by know the assessment? Well, you know, first of all, I think that when we frame what are the learning outcomes, if we frame it in a certain way, if we say students will know or understand that, and we frame it in that using those kinds of words, it compels us to think about, well, what would it look like or sound like? What might they be doing if they really did know that? So there needs to be an alignment between the assessment and the curriculum. And, and I think it's, um, I, I would, I would wish that every time we see a student taking an assessment, that there would be an alignment there between, you know, of course, what was the plan, but what were the big ideas? What was the teaching? And now what's the assessment? Because sometimes when there's that misalignment, then we know that students are at a disadvantage. And when I say know your assessments, know about different ways to assess student 
learning and student comprehension. It doesn't all have to be paper and pencil. Right. I mean, with writing, of course, there's the only way to learn how to write is to write. I, I don't, I mean, except now if you want to slide in chat GPT, I think that ChatGPT <laughs> could teach us a lot about organization because ChatGPT does that very, very quickly. And I think that students could learn from that, you know, how to organize some disorganized thoughts that they might have. I think that might be helpful. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. Dennis, your take on uh, knowing assessment? Yeah, I mean, the it's the old story. Um, I mean, we can go right back to people like Ramsden and Boadu said that the assessment system is probably the, the most important thing that affects student behaviour. Now, if students think that simply memorising lots of stuff is going to get them through an exam and pass, that's that what they're going to do. So the assessment has to be much more practical, real-world focused. For example, if, if I'm teaching students um, language, right, until they get to a GCSE that starts to say you've got to understand similes and metaphors in, in Shakespeare, not that I was ever interested in all of those kind of things, um, that they've got to be able to read reasonably well, have some decent vocabulary and be building this and understand the, the basic rules of grammar, of organisation. Now, that isn't too difficult. That's the key concepts, aren't they? Get your, your thoughts organised well in your mind, right? and clearly see connections between things. So for me, if a, if a student is massively interested in, in motorcycles or football or whatever it is, get them to read, let them read mm. the areas because that will build their, their um, interest in language so they read. So when they come across a word um, and they don't understand it, they want to know what it means. They'll say to the teacher, what's the difference between a denotative meaning and connotations? Um, that when that's explained that one is literal and exact and precise and another one is more um, can open to different interpretations, that they're going to work at those abstract ideas. So make the assessment real, meaningful and practical, aligned to the objectives. I mean, the two have got, I mean, the, what, what is this? desired outcomes and um, those desired outcomes should be meaningful and practical and useful so more you can do that you can then use all the methods and particularly today if you talk about the technologies use those for students to be able to organize the information and the teaching of metacognition is so fundamental let's get students to think better to be able to organize their thoughts rather than let's just try to get bits of information in our heads so um, we think we can pass some um, test of memory. <laughs> um, I mean, this is um, fundamental, I think. Okay, cool. So I want to talk about the, my favourite principle, actually. I'm just, uh, just building up to this. Uh, and that is uh, also making sure that as a teacher, having a wide range of teaching methods uh, and strategies. So, I, 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 and, and, I, and because I think talking to both of you, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, I mean it with every respect, with the years of experience that both of you have, uh, maybe you can just share your thoughts on how then do you consistently add to your repertoire of teaching methods? Because from what I'm seeing for most teachers is there's, there's only one tried and tested method, and that is the way they were actually taught. And that's going to be my go-to method and strategy. 
So what could some teachers do to build their repertoire in the different strategies so that they can really practice this idea of, of inclusivity and uh, differentiated instruction? Maybe I'll get uh, Ochen to chime in first. Yeah, I think several podcasts ago, okay. I, I mentioned that one way we could really improve our pedagogy is yep. to ask really well-crafted questions that simultaneously empower as they challenge the recipient. Because those kinds of questions have multiple access points for okay. young people. Right. So instead of saying, you know, who was Christopher Columbus, uh -huh. uh, which is has only a one right answer, you might ask a question like, if you were an explorer in the 1400s and you wanted to go on a long sea voyage, what kinds of considerations would you have to make in planning that voyage? You know, and so a very concrete thinker could enter it at one level and a very abstract thinker could say, think, you know, so the concrete thinker would say, oh, maybe food and water. And the um, more abstract thinker could say, well, how do we, how do we, um, maintain sailor morale during a, right. long, a long sea voyage. So they could enter it at whatever level they wanted. So one way of really expanding the strategies that you have at your disposal is to ask questions. And then along with that is to ask the kinds of questions that could draw multiple answers. And when we provide different ways that students could actually explain it, uh, to us, I think that that we're allowing them to have choice in how they do that. And again, I just have to go back and say that the exception to that would be writing. Okay, cool. I think I remember that podcast that we talked about. Uh, it brings back memories. So, uh, and I think that's a simple, cool enough way for uh, teachers to actually pick it up quite quickly. Uh, and that is really think about the questions you are asking. Uh, what sort of questions you're asking? And I think don't fall into the trap of uh, asking what I would call topical type of questions. Mm. Uh, would be is really to get them to uh, interact with the concept. Uh, and that would be made clear, obviously, by the teacher. So I'm going to bring Dennis in here. Dennis, what would you do? How would you teach someone this? Uh, what could be some strategies that they might want to consider using? Okay, well, the strategies are crucial, aren't they? But yes. I think Anthony Robbins, who owns a lot more than all of us um, as a uh, motivational person, says that um, it's everything is about questions. It's, it's the mm. questions you ask and um, answering those questions, that's what thinking is. So if we're asking the right kind of questions um, and students are engaged in those questions and collectively we find answers, because most of the things they have to learn for the curriculum, there are answers. The meaning of life is a challenging one, of course. But the kind of thing is, I think it was David Perkins talked an hell of a lot about the kind of questions that you ask. And we want to get students to be able to analyse things, make inference, interpretation evaluate so just saying to students well is something you know show them a video and say what are your comments well the tv was wasn't loud enough that you're asking question in this scenario what do you think were the motive possible motivations of this character 
how did this um, result in, in, in the event that you're watching? What were some of the causative factors, which is an analysis question. So mm -hmm. we want to um, use questions that open things up and invite more questions that eventually students are motivated. And now with things like ChatGPT uh, and others, we can actually find a lot of the information, put it in and then say, right, given that we've got this information, um, that how does that perhaps answer some questions and what other questions does it generate? And then you can just take that process right through any problem that you're solving, whether it's improving morale in the classroom, making the lesson more interesting, what methods are more engaging. When we talk about methods, I always think of a toolbox. Um, whenever anything goes wrong in the house, I usually have to ring a plumber or electrician, a carpenter or someone. Uh, and the reason is I don't really have many tools. I've never actually used an electric drill. So unless it's painting a wall, I do actually know how to use a paintbrush. So, and I think with teachers that it should be their professional responsibility to look at different methods, how those methods work, how they can be combined, how they can be com com um, customized to context. So teachers often seem to want to look for a silver bullet. Ah, problem-based learning. Oh, as long as we mm -hmm. give problems to do or project-based learning, it's, it's finding out what the students need to learn. And the skill is, it's almost like weaving. Uh, crochet, my mum used to crochet and make these wonderful doilies. I used to think, how did she do that? I haven't got a clue. I can just about sew a button on. I usually end up um, pricking my finger a few times as well. So teachers have a responsibility to look at different methods, different strategies, and apply good cognitive scientific principles. How many, how many teachers are out there, and if you said to them, what is a cognitive scientific principle, would they be able to go through those key concepts, activating prior knowledge, promoting thinking, um, using, uh, engaging a range of the senses, doing the feedback, creating a psychological climate. And it goes back to those key concepts. I think that you could probably have a workshop for two days where you talk key concepts on instructional design and yes. uh, method development that could be better than an old PGCE course where, oh, let's have a look at um, Bernstein's work, or let's just have a look at Vygotsky, and let's sort of uh, talk about Pavlov in, in detached ways, rather than look at how the brain actually works, and the relationship between working memory, long-term memory, and different types of practice, and how they work, and applying them, and practically using them. And our teachers engaged in sharing practices we keep talking about you know reflective practice for years and communities of practice um, does this go on consistently well because if you don't do it over time it doesn't become embedded and meaningful so yeah I mean that's I could speak more on that but I think I've said enough well you know I would just like to add to what Dennis yep. said in in terms of of developing questions and all of that. We also need to be explicit in teaching the cognitive processes that we're expecting out of our questions. I, I know that, I, I mean, I've met them because they were in my classes. The young people who reached the international baccalaureate level and when you ask them to analyze something, they didn't know that analysis meant that you had to pull things apart. Oh my so, I think that the International Baccalaureate, the, I mean, every discipline in the um, IB offers what they call command terms or action verbs. And these are the kinds of, of 
of question stems that are often found in examinations. So there are, because each of them has a specific meaning. If we ask students to describe, it has a meaning. If we ask them to compare and contrast, we ask them to analyze, or even when we ask the question, to what extent, all of these have specific processes that are being asked um, of students. And I remember being an examiner for the IB and always knowing when I read the scripts from a certain school, oh, these students have been taught the cognitive processes that were involved in the questions. These students weren't taught. You can see it so clearly in exam scripts. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to wrap up this segment uh, by really getting you guys to maybe just offer one uh, thought on the fifth and final principle, and that is uh, working uh, together with colleagues to understand what could be some ways in which we can introduce differentiated instruction and inclusivity in the classroom. So I'm just going to get you to maybe offer just one thought very quickly for the fifth principle. So uh, Dennis, you want to go first? Yeah, schools, education have got to provide time for teachers to unclutter their minds and get together and to look at the best research that's been done in, in these areas, share their experiences and really get engaged with it rather than uh, getting just getting through the day, which many of them are forced to do. And when you talk about professional development, it's, well, oh, well it's a nice thing to have, but I've got, to, I've got to write this report, I've got to do this, I've got to cover this class and whatever, which is, um, it, there's got to be some, in the, look, when you look at doctors, I mean, um, a friend of ours who, who's an eye surgeon, every now and again he has to read stuff and he's got to do tests, he's got to be updated, and this applies to, most professions, I think in teaching, it's almost like that, that professional development is something. Well, I, I did my teacher training 25 years ago, therefore I'm a good teacher. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there, there's got to be a systemic movement in schools, in education for teachers to be aware of the research. and But not just in a, in, in a detached way, but together saying, what does this mean for the students that we're teaching here? And what are we doing that can be better for those students and how can we evaluate that and improve it over time okay perfect Ochen, you want to wrap up with your thoughts on that sure i think we mentioned earlier that of all of this whether it's inclusion that we want to talk about or as part of inclusion differentiation it rests on the development of relationships yeah. some sometimes we're so fully occupied with proving ourselves professionally that we skip over the human aspect of how we relate to one another. And I would just put in a plug for that. So often we, uh, when, when I visit schools, I hear them talking about how teachers need to collaborate. It's that C word. Yep. And yet there's no time nor training for how to collaborate. Garmston and Wellman say it well when they say that, you know, the research is in. We know that teacher collaboration is related to student achievement. Students learn more. They can. It's a stronger uh, way of in, of instructing young people. And yet, collaboration doesn't come naturally to most of us. And so, it's something that ne we needs to be taught explicitly. Okay. Thank you for that. Perfect. So that really ends the first segment.
segment where we talked a little bit about inclusivity and the importance of differentiating instruction. So uh, I think we've only just begun to scratch the surface, but would you believe it? It's already almost an hour from what we have. Uh, <laughs> My goodness. What, yes. Yeah, and I think there could be another whole new podcast. And, and I'm setting this up because I'm hoping you would say yes so that we can have you as a regular oh, guest on our podcast. Uh, but we'll move on to the part two, which is actually my favorite part of the podcast as well, uh, where we really share something that we have, maybe something that we have read, something that we have watched, or something that we are trying out uh, that maybe we could share with uh, our listeners in the podcast. So maybe I can go first to give you an idea of what uh, uh, what it could be like. Uh, so I have been uh, actually uh, trying to do a bit of research uh, for my ed doctorate. Uh, and I have come across this little application called Consensus. Uh, and really, it is an app. And I've not really tried it, but I'm just, I'm just uh, reading from what uh, someone who has shared this. is uh, Consensus is really an app, an artificial intelligence application that allows you to look for papers in your area of uh, the top five papers of your area of research. And oh. then it is able to provide you the literature, the literature around that topic area. Now, I've not really tried it, but I, I heard it's very powerful. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll put the link to Consensus uh, in the show notes so anybody who's listening to this and is interested to try it out uh, can go ahead and do so. So that's my little sharing for the week, an artificial intelligence app called Consensus. So Dennis, you want to go next? Anything that you want to share with our listeners? Anything that you found interesting? Anything that you uh, found inspiring? Yeah, in fact, what's uh, what I found really interesting is looking at Chat GPT. Uh, I've probably watched every video on YouTube, so I've done due diligence in terms of the different perspectives and to understand the arguments and the limitations and will it develop consciousness and take us over mm -hmm. everything from that. But what is really interesting is I'm working with some students on how to learn better. And what I did about two weeks ago was to um, explain them a very basic point that if you want to be able to pass your exams, it really helps if you know what you need to learn. It goes back to these objectives and the assessment. If you know what you need to learn, you're doing the, the practice and you're looking at the assessment that's involved and you understand all these things fit together, then that's a good strategy. And I actually said to him, look, there's this thing called um, ChatGPT, and what I will do is I'm going to show you how I'm going to learn this. And I identify the things that I would need to do, which is how it works, what it can do, how to use questions skillfully in the ways that we've talked about. And I'm going to do this, and in three weeks' time, we'll see where I am. And I did write an article for the local paper. Uh, it was published on Thursday, and it's, I've actually put it up on LinkedIn, and it's called um, Will Chat GPT Revolutionise Learning and Teaching? And then the students have seen what I've done, how I've learned, modelled it, and I said, this is what you need to do in your subjects. You've got to find out from your teachers what it is that you're going to learn. Not that I've got to learn history. I've got to learn the topic of it or the topic of the environment. What are the specific things and what's important about the these historical events or stories, what was their impact on people's lives and how, what have we learned from this, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been, um, yeah, that's been an interesting week. So, so I've done my technology bit, Mark, this week. 
Um, so, um, Chat GPT is an interesting uh, technological uh, entity. Cool. Good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Ochan, yourself, anything that you would like to share? Uh, yeah, actually, um, I'd just like to, uh, first, I'd like to add on to what Dennis said. I'm actually calling together a roundtable okay. of teachers, of learning support teachers and tech integrators from around the world. And next week, we're going to have a conversation on the role of AI, specifically chat GPT and learning support. So when we talk right. about differentiation, I'll let you know how that goes. But actually, the what I wanted to share here is a book that I'm finishing right now. And it's okay. by, by a fellow named Carlo Rovelli. Okay. And the title of the book is Helgoland, and it's the subtitle is The Strange and Beautiful Story of Quantum Physics. Okay. <laughs> I, am, I am not a physicist, but I am fascinated by the idea that he's putting forward that nothing exists other than in relationship to something else. Right. So he said, even when we talk about the atom, you know, nothing exists other than in relationship to something else. And I've taken that and made that connection with inclusion, with differentiation, with how we teach in schools. So when we talk about young people who are struggling, you know, that struggle does not exist other than in relationship to something else. So something we need to remember. Perfect. I, sounds interesting. I'm going to pick up that book to read it. Thank you very much for sharing that. So that's it, everyone. That really brings us to the end of another episode. Or, and I must say, a very uh, interesting episode for me personally uh, because, you know, really learning from, uh, as I said, who I consider mentors, both uh, Ocean and Dennis. Uh, and yeah, uh, if you found this interesting, please also do share the podcast to some of your friends as well. Uh, and you can also write to us with your questions at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. So that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Mark. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in the next episode. And I'll leave our two guests, uh, I'll leave Dennis and our guests to sign off by themselves. So go ahead, yeah. guys. Episode 61, Mark. Um, so uh, we are putting in a shift and it's been a pleasure, Ochen, you're joining us today and uh, I'll drop you an email later and we'll catch up on things. There's so much we've got to talk about. Uh, I could do all day. So <laughs> Thanks so much, both um, of you. And, really um, enjoyed cool. the last hour. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank Great. you. Okay, yeah. take care everyone and we'll speak yeah. soon. Take care and goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.